0: Blog Talk Radio Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host Bernice Alexander Bennett and I want to welcome the callers and chatters and oh do I see the chatters tonight to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in history and genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Our discussion will focus on slavery in the North. That's right, slavery in the North. And my special guest is Judy G. Russell, the legal genealogist. Now, Judy is, since we're calling her a legal genealogist, you know that G, G, Judy is a genealogist with a law degree. And so we're going to just continue this discussion because I don't want to spend any more time with you listening to me. I want you to listen to Judy. So welcome, Judy G. Russell, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Thanks so much, Bernice. It's really great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back, and for those of you who don't know, Judy was on the show once before discussing property rights and wrongs, and that was such an exciting topic for you to share with us. So, Judy, let's start at the beginning. Why do some people assume that slavery did not exist in the North? You know, I think part of it is that
1: it's so associated with the Civil War and the North being the side that was standing up for the slave and the South being the side that wanted to continue slavery, that we, we kind of assume that everything before the Civil War just doesn't count. We don't teach it in our schools in the North. We don't see it in the, the standard conversations that we have about life in the North. It's, it's like having blinders on. But the fact
0: is it does sound like it's having blinders on, yes.
1: It really is. You know, I I went to school Mm -hmm. in New Jersey. I grew up here in in New Jersey and I went to, to public school and I don't remember a single solitary reference to slavery that had anything other than to do with the Civil War and how the North defeated the South. So Mm -hmm. when I started working as a genealogist and started looking at, you know, ordinary genealogical records like estate inventories, you know, somebody dies and everything that they own has to be valued for tax purposes or for distribution to the heirs. And I'm looking at an 1810 New Jersey estate. And all of a sudden I'm seeing slaves. And I have to tell you, I was shocked. It it simply had never occurred to me
0: Mm -hmm. that there were
1: slaves in the North every bit as much as there were slaves in the South.
0: So actually we've done a, a big disservice. We, not we educating people because, I mean, this is part of American history. So how can we talk about American history and only think that slavery existed in the South? We have to look at the beginning of, of America.
1: We, we do. and And the fact of the matter is that slavery was part of America right from the very beginning. Now, it was a very, you know, we call it the peculiar institution here in America, and it really was because there wasn't mm-hmm. any legal structure to to guide how the new colonists were going to handle slaves. Mm -hmm. And it began even in things like, what do you do with captive Native Americans? You know, that was one of the very first references, legal references to slavery in America, was in Massachusetts in, in the early 1600s, where they had taken... Native American captives. And the question was, what do you do with these people? Um, Mm -hmm. and, And the law said that they were not going to have slavery except for captives taken in a just war, or people who had sold themselves into slavery, or people who had been sold to them as slaves. But that's... You know, right from the very beginning, right in every part of America, there was the question of needing labor, and and having to put people into work positions. So slavery mm-hmm. was part of all of our history,
0: not just the was, Southern history. That's right. So when we talk about slavery in the North, I mean, give us a. a big overview, and then take us to just some uh, specific records that we may want to look at to find additional information. But let's first start with just the big overview of slavery. the, The
1: biggest kind of global view that we need to have of slavery is the, the different roles that it played in different parts of the country. And that, that, I think, may explain a little bit of why we don't look at it quite the same way when we look in the North. You know, the South had those big, open-field plantations with tobacco and other crops that needed an awful lot of, of individual labor. Now, you didn't have nearly as much of that in the North. What you had were many more house servants. You had people who were working for essentially a middle class. So while you had some of the agricultural uses um, in in New York, for example, or in New Mm -hmm. London County, Connecticut, where you did have the agriculture, for the most part you were talking about smaller slave groups, more house servant, more skilled workers in a lot of the mm-hmm. northern colonies. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's part of the difference as well. Um, the mm-hmm. Native American mm-hmm. problem was huge in New England because not only were they taking captives, but they were captives who were very dangerous if If these you know because you're talking warriors, and if these warriors yes. how are you going to control them so one of the ways that african American slavery began in the south uh, in the north was that the native American captives were traded for African slaves in the islands, mhm. That got rid of the security problem of having these Native Americans who could escape and go back to their tribes, and it also introduced African slavery into the northern colonies. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one big difference. It, it's also true that slavery became less and less economical in the North earlier than it did in the South. You had much more of a move towards immigration, particularly from Ireland and Scotland, where you had laborers who could work for less money than it was going to cost you to guard your slaves. Mm -hmm. What that led to in the North was gradual emancipation. Nobody in the North just flat out said, okay, as of tomorrow, all slaves are free. Mm -hmm. All of the northern states went through this slow, almost painful period of 25 years of indenture or 30 years of indenture before the children of, of their slaves would actually be free. Mm-hmm. So you've, mm-hmm. got, you've got this whole pattern of, we, we need labor, we want cheap labor, we're going to use slaves as long as they're cheap, and once they stop being cheap, we'll find a way to get rid of the slave population. And mm-hmm. that, that didn't mm-hmm. mean that they were thrilled to have freedmen living in the North quite to the contrary there were a lot of laws in the north that made it very hard to be a freed person in the north so that's that's a kind of a big picture
0: of yes of the, that that the, is a right
1: each individual state or each individual colony kind of had its own conditions and own circumstances um one of the early court decisions outlawing slavery, for example, would be in Massachusetts. So not only would it be the first state or colony, actually, to have a law recognizing slavery, it was one of the first that went into um, freeing the slaves. And that, was, that had nothing to do with legislation. They, they actually didn't get even a gradual emancipation law through the legislature. What happened was you had the 1780 Constitution, and in the early 1780s, a whole series of court cases that interpreted that Constitution. So very Mm -hmm. different situation in Massachusetts and then just across the border in Connecticut. Connecticut was one of the biggest slaveholding states in the north not a whole lot initially i'd say i think the the figures in 1700 when the colonial governor was reporting back to england was that not more than 1 in 10 estates had slaves but by the revolution it was like 1 in 4
0: wow. new london I didn't, 70, I didn't realize that
1: yeah i mean a, a very very large slave population new london county connecticut by the Revolutionary War, probably had the biggest slave population anywhere in New England. And here again, it tended not to be the farm workers. But you had this booming, prosperous, white middle class. And they wanted servants. Mm-hmm. Easy way to do it, easy way to get it, was through slavery. Western now, they, they turned right around, and they had very strong laws against freedmen. You couldn't buy land. You couldn't go into business without having the permission of the town. So, you know, a, a, kind of a mixed bag there.
0: They finally came and around. So, yeah. Go Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask you, when you talked about strong laws against the freedmen, I mean, what, what were those laws? I mean, other than you can't buy land, but what else did they have? The list, let's see, we start
1: with the fact that they could not serve in the militia. Um, that usually also meant they could not own guns. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you think about that for a minute, and you think, okay, I can kind of understand that, except if you're a freedman and you're living out on what was basically the frontier, how do you feed your family? hmm So you're creating a kind of an underclass that is going to be restricted to the towns and the cities. Because you're not going to be able to protect yourself or feed your family if you can't own a gun.
0: That's right. They
1: they couldn't vote. The laws against mixed marriage were huge. I mean, Massachusetts had laws as early as 1705 against mixed marriages, blacks and whites. In the early 1700s, a Freedman couldn't stay in Massachusetts if there wasn't a bond posted to prove that he wasn't going to become a public charge. So there was this assumption that Freedmen were likely to be a net drain on the economy. Mm -hmm. In many northern jurisdictions, there were no educational opportunities for free children. So lots and lots of restrictions. You know, if you can't own land, and you can't go into business without permission, and you can't marry out of your class, and you can't educate your kids, the real question is, why would you stay? And that's the line that was being drawn. In some of these communities, the answer was they didn't want them to stay.
0: But then, where do you go? If you can't stay, where do you go?
1: Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why people tended to congregate in ghettos right from the beginning. You had small communities. Where the African American population had really had no choice but to band together Mm -hmm. in their own churches, in their own schools, in their own businesses, because the opportunities to integrate into the community, in in a broad sense, just weren't there.
0: Right.
1: And again, you know, if if we did, I've said this before. If we'd have managed to stay Dutch we'd have been a whole lot better off in a lot of ways. Because although the Dutch did have slavery, and they introduced fairly large slave populations into New York State, they also kind of had this, I'm not sure how to describe it, kind of an intermediate category of half-freemen, where you still had to serve, but only part-time. It was it, you could almost, almost analogize it to serfdom rather than slavery, and hmm. and freed, freedmen were able to serve in the militia. They could own property in New York. They could intermarry with the Dutch population. It was only when the British came in and took over in the middle to late 1600s that these early steps at freedom get rolled back in New York. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that, that was not an easy transition. That's one of the reasons why one of the very first significant slave revolts in North America was in New York in 1712. And, you know, talk about being put down hard. We... Think of brutality towards slavery as being something that was the unintelligent, uneducated overseers with absentee masters on big plantations in the in in the South. The punishments for that slave revolt in 1712 were just stunning in in terms of brutality um, mm-hmm. between burning alive and hanged, drawn, and quartered. I mean, just really, really grim. So that's part of the history that we have to deal with. But, you know, New York also, the whole area, New York and New Jersey, both went through a real change with the Revolutionary War. Because you Mm -hmm. remember that, that the British did pretty well in New York and New Jersey. They took big pieces of those territories under their control. And both sides were actively recruiting from the slave population. And both sides were promising freedom. That's right. So you've got the loyalists who are in their territories with freedmen who are being recruited and offered, slaves being offered freedom, and then you've got the patriots offering freedom as an enticement as well. So that mm-hmm. tended to undermine slavery as a continuing um, thing in, in New York and New Jersey. But it still took a long time to get freedom. New York didn't outlaw the slave trade until 1788, Mm -hmm. didn't pass the first law for gradual emancipation until 1799, the final free children under that 1799 statute didn't occur until 1827. Even on the 1820 and 1830 censuses, you've got people showing up as slaves in new york that's right, that's right. you couldn't vote in New York. you couldn't own it. if you once the freedmen were allowed to vote, there were no property ownership requirements for whites, but blacks had to have two hundred and fifty dollars in property in order to vote mhm. So these are the kinds of, of things that, that you see in, in the, the northern colonies. You see emancipations, you see these freedmen coming of age to be considered emancipated under these gradual emancipation laws. But then there've gotta be the bonds posted to prove that they're not going to be public charges. Yes. You see you see freedmen suing for their freedom after having been taken by slave catchers. Tremendous number of native born free people who were taken up as if they were escaped slaves, and the issue was, how do you prove you were born free?
0: Right, and that is a big issue, but I want to ask you a question, and let's take it back for one second, and it's about the gradual emancipation that was passed. Now, at what age uh, would a male uh, be emancipated and what age for the female? And we're talking that, New York. Okay. In New York, under the 1799
1: statute, males were emancipated at age 28 and females at 25. Uh-huh. So, you know, you think about that. That's from 1799. And remember, this only applied to children born after, and I love the date on this, the 4th of July, 1799. Isn't that something? And those children were going to be emancipated, but not until they were much, much older. Now, again, in 1817, they changed the law and they reduced the age somewhat, but they still said, we're not going to put this into effect until 1827. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Connecticut originally set the age for both males and females at 25. 1797, they reduced it to 21. Rhode Island passed its gradual emancipation in 1784, and girls were going to be free at 18 and boys at 21. So it really changed from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There wasn't any one specific... Rule. New Jersey, females 21, males 25. But, you know, when, when New Jersey passed its gradual emancipation law, it made the right to service that you, that you got if you were a, a slave owner, it, it treated that as a property right. So you could sell the right to the service of those children. Quite frankly, I'm not sure I see that as much of a difference between slavery and and non-slavery.
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, you have a question coming out of the chat, and the question is were there any differences for individuals that had specialty skills such as blacksmiths or carpenters uh, could they own their own land, or were they subjected to the exact same rules?
1: They were all subjected to the same rules. Now, the more important your skill was to the economic health of the community, if you were free, the, the, the stronger your chances were of staying free one of the the early cases in New Jersey where a man was taken up by slave catchers out of Maryland he was a blacksmith and the people from the community depended on his smithing and they actually came to court and testified for him so mm-hmm. he was able to to prove that he was a freedman and to you know to be freed from the the fugitive slave act that that's a big difference. Now, that's, that's the good side of having a skill. The bad side of having a skill is that slave owners didn't want to free you. The more valuable yes. you were to them, the more mm-hmm. they wanted to hang on. So you're going to have cases coming up where somebody says, I'm 25. I'm due to be free, and the masters coming into court and saying, "Oh, that's just wrong. He's only 18. I've still got mm-hmm. seven more years."
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're going and to be. And I see could probably that probably happen more often than what we would like to think. I'm I'm sure it did. It, it mm-hmm. purely is a matter of
1: economics. You 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 raise somebody, you train them up, and then all of a sudden. They're looking at freedom and you don't want to let them go
0: that's right it's
1: It's human nature to lie under those circumstances and i'm I have no doubt that it happened absolutely no doubt mhm mm-hmm. so you know you've got a lot of different things going on in this whole time period, from the early sixteen hundreds right up to about teen 1810, 1820, when you're starting to develop fairly significant free populations in the North. But it's, it's a really tough time for anybody who is trying to establish himself or herself as a free person of color in the North.
0: Well, this is a good time for us to take a break because when, we're coming, when we come back, we can talk about what did freedom really mean. So let's take a quick break, Judy, and we'll be right back. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, JeannieBRoots.com. Now you have been listening to the Legal Genealogist Judy G. Russell discuss slavery in the North, something that we really didn't talk about that much. Certainly when I was in school, we didn't talk about it, and Judy's saying the same for her. So let's go back to Judy Russell because we're going to talk a little bit more about, well, what did freedom mean? Because now she, she shared with us some of the various laws in the different states in the North, but then there's a point in time when they are all emancipated, or at least getting to that point. So, Judy, back to you. Thanks, Bernice.
1: You know the, the part of what we need to recognize is that the North by the 1810, 1820 is really kind of broken into into two areas. You've got the old states, the northern version of the 13 original colonies. You know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire. Those areas as the established northern base. But you've also got the areas that had been carved out of the Northwest Territory, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin. And the problem of slavery and the problem of the freedmen didn't go away as the border kept moving west. So you, you start with what happened in the old established states. And your question, what did freedom really mean there? It, has, it really has two answers. One is, what, what did it mean to the people who had been held in slavery and are going through this gradual emancipation? And for most of them... The answer is, it didn't mean a whole lot except a promise for the future. In New Jersey, in the state where I live, for example, there were, the the law was not actually changed to outlaw slavery until 1846. And even when the Civil War broke out, in New Jersey, there were people who were still in this forced apprenticeship status. You're not going to be sold to Virginia or sold to a plantation in Alabama, but you're still obligated to work for a master not of your choosing in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So in, in those areas the reality is that it wasn't all that big a change. For the children coming up and in a reaching age and for people who were totally freed as the result of a master's emancipation or for the slaves who had escaped to the north, that's where the... Old states really kind of provided the impetus for abolition, um, for the, the, the abolitionist churches, for the abolitionist schools, uh, providing opportunities and protection when when the slave catchers came through. I mean, you you'll see the the posters being put up in in Boston saying, "Watch out, the slave catchers are here," and mm-hmm. and they literally both African Americans and white Americans would protect people who were being actively sought by the slave catchers. So that's that's mm-hmm. the kind of that's what's going on in the old states. You've got this, this mix of not a whole lot and real opportunity.
0: Yes. But,
1: yes. Boy, when you start moving that boundary to the West and you get into Ohio and Illinois and Indiana and, and even to some degree Wisconsin, it's a whole nother world. Because you start with the Northwest Ordinance. You know, we all learned a little bit about this. This was the, the law that was put into effect in 1787, and it's going to create the opportunity for these new states out in the, the West. And it's got this wonderful provision. In Article 6, it says, no slavery, no involuntary servitude in the Northwest Territory. So, you know, here's a real promise. But it wasn't carried through. Because there were two problems. One was that even the Northwest Ordinance provided for return of fugitive slaves.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So somebody escaping from slavery could still be, under the Northwest Ordinance, handed back to the slave territories. So you couldn't get your own freedom by just making it into those territories. And if you got to those territories with a master or, or as a freedman, there were all kinds of problems there, too. Yes. In Ohio, we'll take that one as an example. Ohio becomes a state with the Constitution of 1802. And and in its Constitution, it says flat out, can't have slaves in Ohio. It turns right around in 1804, and again in 1807, and passes black laws. And these mm-hmm. laws were absolutely intended to keep freed people out of ohio to prevent immigration into ohio if you were a freedman and you wanted to stay in ohio you had to have papers proving you were free you had to register those papers in court you had to post a bond and you know we're talking the early 1800s a bond of $500, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So, you know, how's a freedman going to be accepted as having enough assets to post that kind of a bond? That's a real problem. Now, the truth is, I, I want to be fair to Ohio, the truth is that for the most part, these laws were ignored. Because there's so much open territory and and so much open land that nobody really cared except in the cities. Mm-hmm. And finally, in the cities is where you get the real battles. In, in 1829, in Cincinnati, the local population, you know, I've read about this, I still don't quite know what caused the problem. There had been a lot of of European immigration, so labor was cheap, and maybe it was the competition for jobs, I'm not sure. But the city fathers in Cincinnati said to the freed population, either comply with every aspect of the black laws or leave. And they gave the African American population of the city of Cincinnati 30 days, to either comply or get out. And the the truth is that half of Cincinnati's free population left and went to Canada in 1829. Mm -hmm. The legislature in Ohio even went so far as to say, if you were a freedman, you didn't have the right to go to the legislature and ask for a redress of grievances you couldn't go to court if you were a freedman under those laws. So this mm-hmm. is this is tough stuff. You had no liberalization of those laws in Ohio until 1849, and even then it was only a partial repeal. And you still had segregated schools. Not not mm-hmm. just segregated, but even the very local schools, mostly run by African-American churches, they could be attacked. They didn't want an educated, stable, local African population. So here you have this free state that wasn't very welcoming of freed people. That's right, and you you're making it very clear. And and the laws couldn't have been clearer in, in place. You know, you think of Illinois, big northern state, and a home of Abraham Lincoln, and, and that's where that you had huge um troops being raised in the Civil War and in its constitution in eighteen eighteen. No slavery. And it turns right around and bars immigration. And when I say immigration, I'm talking about African immigration, not from Ireland or from Germany, but the freed people. Laws passed in 1819, 1829, 1853, and what blew my mind, just absolutely blew my mind, the 1853 Illinois statute, the penalty for a freedman who didn't comply was being sold into servitude at public auction. Mm. In Illinois in 1853, and the bond for a freedman in Illinois was a thousand dollars. Freedmen couldn't serve in the militia, they couldn't vote. It had a new constitution in 1848, and the anti-African immigration clause of that constitution passed by a vote of two to one. It, it just—I I, was—I was shocked. I really was very surprised by that law. And there was another law in Illinois that a non-resident slave owner. Okay, so the slave owners from Kentucky, he could hire his Kentucky slaves to an Illinois resident for 12 months. And that was okay because that was contract, that wasn't slavery. I mean, it just it's it's shocking what some of these laws provided. Absolutely shocking. And they almost you know, we, we again, we think of Illinois as this big Midwest, northern state. And in 1824, they, they came so close to going for slavery, it wasn't funny. The, the vote was so tight that it literally could have become... A free, a a slave state in eighteen twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, just, mm-hmm. uh, I, I had no idea.
0: You know, these are these are now, the kinds of things we don't hear about. We we just don't hear about it. But did you see um, any indication that some of the laws from Virginia and South Carolina were also being used in some of the northern and northwest states? not so much well you know some of the concepts one of
1: the big ones was no gun ownership you know that was a that was a clear provision of the the black laws in the south they they did not want freedmen ever to own a gun and that did carry over into the north what what mm-hmm. the north was afraid of more than anything else was was big populations of uneducated farm workers coming up from the South without any skills and becoming public charges. And so that's Mm -hmm. they wanted Mm -hmm. to just close the border. The notion was this was an immigrant population from a part of the world that has nothing to do with us. Send them back to Africa. The fact that these are people who've been in... America for three, four, five generations. uh, Many of those generations as free people of color didn't enter into the discussion at all. It was race-based right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You had the same sort of thing in Indiana. The 1816 Constitution said you can't own slaves. But it imposed its own black immigration laws in 1831, 1852. The Constitution uh, had an anti-immigration clause. That clause passed by a wider margin than the Constitution as a whole. You, You had to have free papers. You had to have a bond. And there was a freedman who lived in Indiana, he courted across the Kentucky line, and he wanted to bring a woman from Kentucky into Indiana to marry her. Mm -hmm. Case went all the way to the state Supreme Court, and they said no, that he could not marry this woman from Kentucky. And the language of that opinion, I, I had to write it down, word for word, because it's it's really stunning, the court said that the Indiana policy was, and I quote, to exclude any further ingress of Negroes and to remove those already among us as speedily as possible, end quote. Wow. That's Indiana in the 1800s. And that's the 1800s. Yeah, I mean wow. you're talking right on the verge of the Civil War, and these are the kinds of restrictions that are being imposed. Mm-hmm.
0: You know,
1: you're you're limited in where you can live. You're limited in how you can work. You've got to have papers to travel, and prove mm-hmm. that you're free. You usually can't serve on a jury. You almost inevitably cannot testify in a case that involves a white person. You can't marry a white person. You can't educate your children. And we'd really rather that you went back to Africa. That's the message that was coming through everywhere in the North.
0: And that's not the message, however... When you have heard about, I mean, you know, you talk about the Civil War, you talk about slavery, but that's not the message that you consistently have heard about the North. No. You know, when, but there's a reason when you think about it
1: why the Underground Railroad didn't stop in places like Ohio and mm-hmm. Illinois and Indiana and New mm-hmm. York. Why mm-hmm. the end terminus of the Underground Railroad was Canada. Mm-hmm. because the freedmen and the escaping slaves really were not welcome. They, this posture and and positioning of of racial line was drawn so much earlier than I think we we really come to terms with. It makes right. it a lot more of an intractable problem when you when you think about just how far back mm-hmm. this has gone and how this was entrenched in the laws of states where you wouldn't have
0: you wouldn't have expected it. Right now, the you know, but one of the things I mean, there were, and this is a comment coming out of the chat, but there were freedom suits. Yes. Uh, and so, from a from a genealogical perspective, uh, certainly uh, there's. A big opportunity to find as much information as possible uh, about your ancestors simply by looking at some of those freedom suits. There, they're That the genealogical uh, opportunities
1: are are almost unlimited in the north, to the same extent, and and in some ways much larger extent than they are in in the south. And you start mm-hmm. with what. I hate to use the term, but the ordinary records of slave ownership. Things like tax records and tax lists. Mm-hmm. Things like the estate records and all of the inventories um, when, when somebody died and all of his possessions had to be inventoried. Those, the tax records and the estate records, you will frequently find at least the first name of the slaves. Sometimes, if you're lucky, they'll be divided into family groups, and sometimes Mm -hmm. you'll get ages and descriptions added in. Um, You'll also see that sometimes in the tax records. I was looking at some early Pennsylvania tax records where all of the slaves in a district were listed by name with, with an age and then who the master was. So you've got these kinds of ordinary records of slave ownership, and you're going to find bills of sale, you're going to find court records, you're going to find court cases involving claims that, you know, Daddy didn't give that slave to Johnny, he gave that slave to me, and I should get it in the estate division. So all of those kinds of records that we're accustomed to seeing when we do African-American research in the South, we're going to find mm-hmm. those in the early court records of the North. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to look at all of the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you get that, the records that your chat room people are talking about, the freedom suits, and because of gradual emancipation, you're actually going to see more court cases rather than fewer. Because people are getting the idea that if I can just show that I'm 25 or 28 or 21, maybe I don't have to stay on this farm. Maybe I can go and hire out down at that farm. So you do have these suits being brought, A, for freedom completely, or B, for a termination of these apprenticeships. So you've got a lot of court cases that are potential throughout the northern states arising out of gradual emancipation. Mm -hmm. There's a flip side to that, that a lot of the freed children were subject to being bound out, even if their parents were free, even if their parents could support them. Because of, again, this kind of knee jerk we got to make sure these these people don't become a public charge so you're mm-hmm. going to find you're going to find apprenticeship records for a lot of free children of color in the north so you want to look for those and and remember that you're talking in New York and New Jersey you're talking surrogate court records in other states it's going to be called the ordinary or the protonitary lots of different terms for these courts, but they're all doing the same sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're, then you're going to want to look for records that basically go to this whole issue of these black laws. There were freedom bonds. There were freedom yes. papers. Um, masters had to register emancipations. People had to establish that they could hold a job or own land or work in a business. There are lots of registers of free people of color in the northern states because of these laws. The interesting thing that I found in looking at slavery in the north and and this early period or transitional period of freedom is that there were vigilante societies. And and I don't want that word to be negative right away, because they existed on both sides. You had the white vigilante societies getting together, trying to, to keep African Americans out, but you also had African American vigilante societies It's just the name that they used because they were vigilant in protection of their own freedoms and rights. Mm -hmm. There was a very large young men's African Vigilante Society in Philadelphia, for example, and those records survive. So you've got the names and the ages and the Pamphlets and the activities of these organizations very well documented in some of the northern states like New York and, and New Jersey and Pennsylvania so a lot of records like those that test cases on voting, test cases on licensing you've got the first. African American justice of the peace who ever served in America, Marcus Bowling Allen in Massachusetts in the 1840s. So lots of people pushing the limits. And the nice thing about people who push limits is they create records. And as James, right. now there's
0: a There's a question coming out of the chat, and it's going back to some of the vigilante societies. Uh Where will one find such records? They are
1: frequently held in academic libraries or state archives. For people who are in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, I want to recommend The Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, for one, there's a terrific article that was written in 1968 called The Vigilant, and I really should say Vigilant, not Vigilante, Vigilant Committee of Philadelphia is the name of the Mm -hmm. article. Great article in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. In the New Jersey History Magazine, there's another article on the rise and fall of New Jersey vigilance Societies. So you want to go to places like NUCMUC, that's the National Union Catalog of Manuscripts and Collections, where you can find some of these private organization records and find out where they're located, mm-hmm. whether in a private archive or a public archive some good records on that. You also want to yeah. look at at the records that are in the newspapers of race riots of anti and pro abolitionists of draft riots in New York. All of these drastically impacted the African American communities in the in the north as they sought to establish themselves as Free communities. So newspapers are a terrific resource. Mm -hmm. So we've gone through the typical records of slavery. We want to look at the atypical records that affected only the African Americans in the North all of the records that are created as a result of the Black Laws. And then we want to look at all of the track records of individual organizations, of abolitionist societies, of people pushing the limits to try to establish freedom in the North.
0: Okay. Well, this certainly has given us a very good overview of where we need to look, the fact that slavery did exist in the North, and certainly we have our marching orders because we definitely need to go there. Uh, there was a question in the chat, and if you can take just a few minutes, uh, we're, we're at the end of the show, but just a few minutes just to tell us what was going on in Wisconsin and Michigan as far as uh, slavery the laws, and what, what we need to know and what we need to find out about Michigan and Wisconsin. Well,
1: Wisconsin, I am delighted to report, was about the very first state that allowed freedmen to vote. Now, it took a while. Hmm. There was a, an 1849 referendum that eliminated most of the, the black laws in Wisconsin, But nobody pushed those limits and really presented himself as a candidate for voting until the early 1860s. But when a freedman did present himself in the early 1860s in Wisconsin and sought to vote, the courts upheld it on the grounds of the the earlier statutes. Now, Michigan is kind of halfway in between. They were still developing, and still a fairly agrarian economy. Some of the early statutes were very similar to those that you're going to find in Illinois and Indiana, but what mm-hmm. what people in Michigan say about it is that they weren't enforced as as vigorously. Uh, it's it's a lot further north. The the Population density hadn't reached the the critical point. And you also, in Detroit and some of those other areas, have a little bit of that old French influence, the mm-hmm. old civil law concepts. And that tended to keep things less rigorous in, in the anti-immigration zone.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it isn't well, they did you know, the
1: laws they just didn't enforce them
0: they just didn't enforce them well you know I brought up Wisconsin and Michigan and now somebody wants to know well what about Minnesota <laughs> you know I think <laughs> it, it, it,
1: I, we'd have to we can go one by one through all of these states <laughs> um, Minnesota is, is it's going to have its own laws it's going to have its own history but in every one of these states look for registers of free blacks. That's usually what they're called, either freedmen, free people of color, or free blacks. But what they were doing was wanting people to have papers. So if there are going to be records, the records are going to be in those kinds of registers. And it doesn't matter where you are in the North – Those are the kinds of records that you want. And and the one thing I want to emphasize here at the end is that, yes, these records are important for free people and for the, the descendants of slaves and free people of color. But these are also important records for the descendants of the slave owners and the white populations who were impacted by these issues as well. So just as slavery was an issue for everybody, freedom was an issue for everybody, and we all ought to be looking at these records for what they can tell us about our people and the role that they played in America as it was developing.
0: And thank you so much for making that that comment, because the records are for all of us. Well, for those of you who will be attending the Midwest African-American Genealogical Institute in July in St. Louis, Judy Russell will be on the faculty. And so you will have an opportunity to learn more from her about the various laws. So, Judy, I would just like to thank you so very much for coming on the show tonight. You have really provided us with some invaluable information. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Bernice. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, please join me next Thursday, April the 17th, And the topic for next Thursday is finding your family records at FamilySearch.org with two experts from FamilySearch.org, Meryl White and Robert Kerr. So this is going to be an exciting show, and I definitely want all of you, send me your questions so that you can already have the questions there and we can have the answers when our two experts come on. So, good night, everyone. Again, thank you, Judy G. Russell. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius Facebook pages And also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And next Wednesday, please join Jane Wilcox from the Forget-Me-Not Hour because the Memory Seekers will be on her show, the Memory Keepers. And we will be on the show to discuss our ancestors, our stories And so this is a wonderful opportunity for all of you to hear from the memory keepers. So good night everyone and I look forward to you joining me on next Thursday. This is your host Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night Good night <laughs>